Well, well, good morning, good morning. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Unraveling the Words of Yahweh. My name is Kevin Eitner, and so glad to have you tuning in this morning. Oh, mercy sakes. We're in this uh, this book of Revelation, or, or as I like to say, the Apocalypse of Yeshua Messiah. And uh, it, it, it because when you take it, the Apocalypse, it talks about his coming, his uh, appearing uh, manifestation, even the uncovering of him in person. And uh, there, there's no doubt about it. John, John's the writer, you know, John the Beloved and so forth. Uh, there's all kind of historical uh, uh, documentation on it through the early church fathers. Uh, he's definitely the writer. And the time frame, well, unfortunately, I'm not a preetist, so I, I believe that the date of Revelation has to be somewhere 95, 96, 97 AD, some, somewhere in there, especially when you read the, the, the writings of uh, Irenaeus and so forth. Uh, you, you have all this. You know, he was on the island of Patmos and so forth. Now, we have come to chapter 11. And we just, in the last couple studies, we talked about verses 1 and 2. Now we've come to verse 3. And we talk about from verses 3 to verse 14. We have an account of the two witnesses. Folks, listen up. This is one of the most serious and mysterious scenes of the whole apocalypse. It is the test of all interpretations and one over which make many shipwreck. The particulars of mission of these two witnesses are given with very great detail. Any student of Bible prophecy will agree that as we compare the constellation of signs and events that are set forth in the prophetic word with all that's going on in the world around us, there can be no doubt that the stage is being set for the second coming of the Lord Yeshua Messiah. Yeah, these are troubling days. These are difficult days. But dear friends, these are also exciting days. And you, I, you, you hear me talk about troubling days. You know, where do I begin? There's so much going on. I mean, so much around. We're, we got the transgender and the LGKQ, whatever you want to call themselves. But while all this is going on, you got that great Luciferian of the world, world health our World Economic Economical uh, Forum, Klaus Schwab. Remember last in our last study, I talked a little bit about Klaus Schwab and his connection with Fauci. Well, are you guys uh, Do you guys have any understanding of AI, artificial intelligence? Listen to what Klaus Schwab says on AI chatbots, digital identities. He says here, who masters these technologies in some way will be the master of the world. World Economic Forum founder Klaus Schwab 
This week spoke about the fourth industrial revolution technologies at the World Government Summit in Dubai. Klaus Schwab spoke about rapidly changing technology, chatbots, digital identities, and more. He goes on to say that the masters of the universe will control the digital world and in turn control people, according to Klaus Schwab. And I'm going to take you to another article on this. This article is titled Dataism is the new religion of AI and transhumanism. Those who own and control the data control life. Now I picked out this article because it has to do with Jerusalem. Listen very carefully. Yovel Noah Hanarai is an Israeli professor in the Department of History at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He is one of the leading technocrats today who promotes artificial intelligence, AI, and makes techno-prophecies about the future. Claiming that AI is advancing so rapidly that we are the last generations of Homo sapiens. Because transhumanism, transhumans will soon replace us. Harari makes it clear that dataism is the new religion that fuels AI. And he claims we are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. Within a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from the Nathanderals or from chimpanzees. Because in the coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies and brains and minds. Now, how exactly will the future masters of the planet look like? This will be decided by the people who own the data. Those who control the data control the future. Not just of humanity, but the future of life itself. Because data is the most important asset in the world. Yuval Noah Harari believes that one day we will be able to hack humans because he believes that the human mind is no different than a computer. And our thoughts are simply biochemical algorithms. This is a religion, not science. It is based on a Darwinian biological view of life, which sees reality as simply the observations of the physical world, ignoring the human soul and spirit. This is what we're fighting against, folks. We're fighting against this agenda. I talk about the World Economic Forum. Well, do you realize that they're bed partners with the United Nations? This is the United Nations agenda 
It's called Agenda 21 to 2030. This is, this is what it is here. They want to establish a one world government. I, I bring this up because we're in this chapter 11. And we're already seeing in scripture here what John's vision is coming to a reality. We want They want a one world government, one global controlled cashless currency, one global central bank, one global military, the end of all national sovereignty, and all private owned property except for the elites. They, they want to end the family unit. They want to depopulation, control population growing and, and density, endless mandatory vaccines. You remember I talked to you a couple months ago, I read you the article of uh, Bill Gates standing up there, uh, uh, was it 2018, I believe, in that forum where he said that vaccines will kill off the population? Have you been watching the news lately about all these young athletes all of a sudden dying? Every day there's two or three athletes right here in the United States. They're dying because of mysteriously. You know why? Because they had the vaccine, the COVID vaccine. I tried to tell you folks this months ago. They want universal basic income. They want a microchip society for trade, travel, tracking, control. Implementation of a world social credit system. Internet of Things, everything hooked on 5G monitoring. They want government to raise children. You may not realize it, but the government is already raising your child. If you stop and you think about it, the government is already raising your child. Once you put your child in public school, the government has them. The government owned and controlled schools, education. There you go. And private transportation. No more owning cars. All businesses owned by government slash corporations. Well, they already do. Majority of them. BlackRock. Vanguard. State Street. All controlled by the Rothschilds. Rockefellers. Restriction of non-essential air travel, settlement zones, concentration of humans in cities only, end of private farm limestock and irrigation. Well, how can they do that? Well, have you been following the news? Now, I don't know what channels you watch, but Bill Gates is bringing in these uh, genetic hamburgers. Well, we no longer need to eat meat. There goes your protein. Was it Hardee's or something like that? They're already Burger King. They're already advertising non-beef hamburgers. Restrict land use. Well, we see that happening. And band of natural non-synthetic drugs and medicines. In other words, you will own nothing and be happy. That's what it's all happening about. And keep your eye on this gentleman here, Klaus Schwab. He's a, he's a big contributor in the political world. Oh, yeah, he donates to the liberals. So right there's a red flag. 
So, folks, we're already in these difficult days. But keep in mind, these days are also exciting. You see, there are many signs that Yeshua promised and the prophets and the apostles made mention of. For an example, Yeshua Messiah said that before he comes, the world will be living as in the days of Noah, eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. There's a, there's a twofold part to this. You know, in my little nutty world, I'm thinking of what happened there in Genesis chapter 6 when those fallen angels came down. Ben Elohim. And they came down and they married the, the, the daughters of the Eth Hadam. Why? Well, 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 Brother Kevin, why in the world would the angels want to come down and marry the daughters of Eth Hadam? To destroy that bloodline to the Yeshua Messiah. All it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then we look around the, the, the other part of this, given eating and drinking and marrying, we, we see it happening. Look around us. Men marrying men, women marrying women. Got transgender here, chance. They don't know. Now we got to do uh, pronouns. Hogwash. And these milk. Thumb-sucking Christians continue to go to church and allow all these things to happen in society and not standing up. Oh, that's right. Your church is probably a 501c3. You are controlled by the government. You can go there. You can go to church all you want to and praise Jesus all you want to. The bottom line is you're controlled by the government, the New World Order. And certainly as you look around the world today, there is granted indifference towards the reality that Yeshua is coming again. Judgment is coming upon the earth. If you don't believe that, just go tell the people you are in your office, your friends, your neighbors. Just tell them, you know what? Yeshua Messiah is, is going to come pretty soon. And he's going to judge the world. And you better be ready. And just see what the reaction will be. Try witness to these lunatics out there. But hold on a second. That's not to say we're not supposed to try. You plant that seed. Because you know what? You plant the seed right now. Today. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Next week, next month, next year. You see, somewhere along the line, that seed may be watered. Watered by the Holy Spirit. We never know. But it's our responsibility to go out and plant that seed, the gospel of Yeshua Messiah. Now keep in mind, at this point in time, in this revelation here, we are in the sixth trumpet. And we go, uh, this gets all the way back to uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. Near the end of the fifth seal, there in chapter 6, verse 9. Or maybe in the beginning of the sixth seal, as we read there in chapter 6, verse 12. Now, what we have to realize is between the sounding of the sixth and the seventh trumpet, that's where we're at today, according to the book of Revelation. We're between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. We see another pause, and that pause begins at chapter 10, verse 1, goes all the way to chapter 11, verse 14. And what 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 the the Lord's revealed to John is, I, I, we're going to stop. I want to show you something. 
I want to show you what's happening in between these trumpet sounds. We call an interlude. Just as there was an interlude before the breaking of the seventh seal, so now there's an interlude before the sounding of the seventh trump here in chapter 11, verse 15. This vision, however, differs from the message of consolation and assurance introduced between the breaking of the sixth and the seventh seals. That emphasized the safety and the glory of the, of the persecuted people of Yahweh. The message describes the mingling of the sweet and the bitter. It speaks of persecution and tribulation, but also of loyalty and devotion. The purpose of the interlude in each of the cycles of seven seemed to be largely dramatic. With the completion of the sixth in each series, we hold our breath in anticipation of the end. But this dramatic writer does not allow the end to come with such quickness. Each time John makes us wait before we see the seventh of the series. During the first part of this interlude, yet another entire cycle of seven is thrown on the screen momentarily and then removed after only a glance has been permitted. This effect is tantalizing, folks. This cycle, which involves seven thunders, was clearly witnessed by the writer, and John was about to write what he had seen when he was told, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. There in chapter 10, verse 4. Whether this is, again, device used only for effect or whether it has some deeper significance, it's hard to say. Perhaps the seven thunders were for John what the things that Paul saw in the third heaven were for it for him. You see, at that time, Paul heard, he says, things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to repeat there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. This suggests there are, that there are dimensions of reality that mortals are not able to comprehend. We see in John's vision, he sees another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, there in chapter 10, verse 1, which means that he is clothed with Yahweh's power, and mercy. The angel was holding a little scroll, opening his hand. John is told to take it and eat away. A way of saying that he is to read, learn, mark, inwardly digest. Even as we still speak of devouring a book. Meaning that we read it with eagerness. The scroll, which is not the sealed scroll of chapter 5 is a special message from Yahweh to John. In his mouth, the scroll is sweet as honey, but in his stomach, bitter. There in 10.10. Signifying that it is sweet to receive Yahweh's message, but that its wrath and judgment fill him with sorrow. Having assimilated the contents of the little scroll, John is commanded to make them known by prophecy to many peoples, nations, languages, and king. There in chapter 10, verse 11. 
What follows in chapter 11 has been generally acknowledged to be one of the most perplexing sections of the entire book. There is presented here an almost bewildering interweaving of symbols suggested by the Old Testament history and prophecy. We find reference to the temple and to the altar, to Moses, to Elijah, to the wild olive trees, to the lampstand seen by Zechariah, to the plague sent upon Pharaoh, to the tyrant predicted by Daniel, Sodom and Egypt and Jerusalem. Perhaps the most that can be said with confidence is that John views the people of Yahweh as bearing faithful testimony, but also as suffering pain and persecution and disgrace. They are, they are delivered not for martyrdom and death, but through martyrdom and death, to a glorious resurrection. Nevertheless, beyond such a very general understanding of the passage, some features of Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, can be clarified by the patient exhibitor who seeks to discriminate between what is to be understood literally and what is to be understood symbolically. How should we take John's statement when he says that he was given a measuring rod and to measure the temple of Yahweh and the altar and those who worship there, there in verse 1? Consequently, it could appear that John is using symbolic language. Speak to the temple, not as a building, but maybe, maybe Yahweh's people. Measuring is done in order to build and repair. John is given a measuring rod so that he can restore and revive the church. Such spiritualization use of the word temple is to represent the Christian church as found elsewhere in the New Testament. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, for an example, asked the Corinthians believers, Do you not that you are Yahweh's temple? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Later on, Paul directly says, We are the temple of the living Yahweh, 2 Corinthians 6.16 Furthermore, according to Peter, Christians are living stones built in a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2.5 Thus the whole church is growing into a holy temple to the Lord, as Paul states in Ephesians 2.21. John is told to measure only the inner court of the temple. Do not measure the court, for it is given over to the nations. There in verse 2. Those on the outside are the persecutors of the church who will trample over the city for 40, holy city for 42 months. They are not permitted to destroy the church, but, but also permitted to oppress it for a limited time. The period of three and a half years is a traditional apolitic term of the Gentile domination derived from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and in chapter 12, verse 7, where its primary reference is to the defilement of the temple by the abomination of desolates set up by Antioch IV, from 164 to 167 164 BC. When the two witnesses have finished their testimony, they are attacked and killed by the beast from the bottomless pit. There in verse 7. This demonic monster will be described in greater details in chapter 13 and chapter 17. The killing of the two witnesses is linked that of the Messiah in Jerusalem, the great city that is allegorically called Sodom and Egypt, verses 8 and 9. 
Did you know Proppel Burrier was concerned was uh, concerned a great disgrace and an insult to the dead? Although the ministry of the witnesses was exercised in Jerusalem, the allegory develops. Division is enlarged to include the entire world, that ripple effect. From all parts of the earth, members of the peoples, the tribe, the language, and nations, verse 9, celebrate because the two prophets are dead and can no longer affect the conscience by calling sinners to repentance. This is why it's so important about the AI technology. See, through the AI technology, these two witnesses, they can't seek out these, these transhumans to repent. But Yahweh intervenes in the middle of the gloating, gives his servants resurrection life, calls them up to heaven there in verse 12. The grim aftermath following the assumption of Yahweh's witness is the judgment of Yahweh on the wicked city that killed them there in verse 13. A destructive earthquake wrecks a tenth of the city, brings to death 7,000 of its inhabitants. Shock of their stupor. Those who survive are terrified and give glory to Yahweh in the heaven there in verse 13. How often the blood of martyrs become the seed of the church, quotes Tertullian. We just witnessed here in the news last week, week and a half ago, there in Turkey, Syria. What is it, over 20,000, 30,000 now have died through this earthquake? By the way, there's something interesting about that earthquake. There's a little history on that area. And there's many out there that believe that this earthquake was no accident. Check it out. In verses 3 and 4, we have these two witnesses. We see their equipment and their endowment during verses, verses 3 and 4. In verses 5 and 6, their judgment on their enemies in the elements. Verses 7 through 10, their sufferings. Verses 11 and 12, their reward. In verse 13, their avengement. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. And he says here, and I will give power. Now, the word power is not in the original Greek manuscripts. So that give must mean give commission or some such word. Literally, I will give, he says here, I will give to my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy. Now listen very carefully. A thousand two hundred and three score days. Cloth. In sackcloth. They're mourning. The two witnesses. The two witnesses of me, he says. The article implies that the two were well known, at least to John. However, we have no idea who they are. There are many speculations on them. But nobody really knows for sure. Some say Elijah, Moses. Others may say Moses or Enoch or Enoch and Elijah. 
I personally tend to lean on Moses and Elijah, and Elijah because Moses was the lawgiver and the powers that they perform over Elijah. The reason some propose Enoch and Elijah because they were both caught up into heaven, therefore not dying of the flesh. However, we read in the book of Jude, verse 9, that the angel Michael is contending with, the, with Satan over the body of Moses. You see, Yahweh buried Moses. So Moses may be a candidate for one of the, the two witnesses. The prophecy. What he means here is, is to preach under the inspiration of the Spirit, denouncing judgments against the apostate. They are described by symbols as the two olive trees and the two candlesticks or lampstands standing before Yahweh of the earth. The reference is to Zechariah chapter 4 verse 3 and, and verse 4 where two individuals are meant and some seem to think Joshua, Yeshua Messiah and Zerubbabel who ministered to the Jewish church just as two olive trees emptied the oil out of themselves into the bowl of the candlestick. Remember what I told you in a prior study about that oil in the Greek? Check out Matthew chapter 25, the 10 virgins. And I want you to check the spe uh, Greek spelling of the oil. So in the final apostasy, Yahweh will raise up two inspired witnesses to minister encouragement to the afflicted, those sealed remnants. As two candlesticks, symbolic of light, are mentioned in verse 4, but only one in Zechariah 4.2. Some even think that the two candlesticks are the twofold church, Jewish and Gentile, just as in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. They're described the first of the seal of Israel, then those all of the nations. Once again, the action of the two witnesses are just those of Moses when witnesses were Yahweh against Pharaoh the type of an antichrist, the last and the greatest foe of Israel. Turning the waters into blood, smiting with the plagues, and of Elijah, the witness for Yahweh in almost a universal apostasy of Israel, a remnant of, of 7,000, however, being left as 144,000 are sealed there in chapter 7. Causing fire by, the, by his word, Devour the enemy, shutting heaven, so that it rain not for three years and six months. The very same time as 1,260 days. Remember I talked about days? Days being solar? Don't overlook these two witnesses. Research them. Because if, if Moses is turned out to be... You see, Moses prophesies against Pharaoh. I did a study years ago on this. And what it was, was each of the plagues that Moses performed with the help of the Holy Spirit were against the Egyptian deities. So what we have here is we have Moses going out against this one world government these two witnesses let me put it to you this way the two witnesses one of the witnesses is performing miracles against the one world government 
The other witness is speaking out to the apostates. Now, we have to ask ourselves, well, what are the apostates? Well, it, it's, it's pretty simple. There's, there's two states on this. We're in Jerusalem. So we see that there's the building of the temple. So we see the one witness speaking against those that sit there on the throne, in other words, Satan, and he's Antichrist, the false Messiah, and those that follow after him. The unbelievers are still waiting for the true Messiah. And we have the witness also speaking to the apostate church, thinking they're going to be raptured away. Are those so-called Christians still sucking on bottles milk, sucking their thumbs, keeping the pew seats warm, never getting out and, and saving souls? They're willing to sit there and allow the, the claw swabs to control the world, to build gates, the Zuckerbergs, these liberals. Got two witnesses, but in reality, the witnesses are speaking once again to the new world order, this one world government, and the other witness speaking out to the apostates. And, and we read in Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, we read the words of Yeshua Messiah about apostasy. We see it happening right around us today. I just shared with you an article right out of Jerusalem about the AI. But take notice here, 1,203 days, not months, but days. Do you see the difference? Days are solar. Solar is of the light. Therefore, these two witnesses are from Yahweh. We're not really told that this is the same period as the treading down, but it reads as though the two periods were uh, synchronous. The cal Once again, the calculations given in months, for these seem to have a, a, a special relation to judgments. You see, the beginning and the duration of the flood is given in months. The, the plague of the locusts is five months. The blasphemies and the persecutions of the beast are reckoned by months. But take note, but when it comes to man, the duration of his years are reckoned by days. And you can check this out in Genesis 47, 9, Psalms 90, 10, uh, uh, 12, uh, Psalms 119, verse 84. You see, our life is lived by days, and the testimony of these two witnesses is to be given us by day by day. The sackcloth, the garment of prophets, especially when calling people the mortification of their sins and to repentance. They're not going to be walking around like these TV evangelists in their four or $5,000 suits. No. Keep in mind, remember, this is why I like to share with us you, you, what's, what's getting ready to transpire here with this, this new world order from the United Nations. 
This is what they're driven to do. You will not own nothing but be happy. Think about this. Here you got that lunatic Harari over there. Yovo Noah Harari talking about AI transhumans. Meanwhile, you have these two witnesses walking out, speaking against them. Here, here's the sad part. Do you realize that these two witnesses will be hated by the church, the Christian churches? Think about this. Well, well how, how's that possible? Because they're going to step on toes. They're going to expose every church denomination. We can start with the Catholic Church with the false pope. He's going to talk about the National World Council of Churches. You 50C3 hypocrites. He's going to expose those so-called Christians that love liberalism. And he's also going to expose those churches that allow Freemasonry ministers to stand in their pulpit. These two witnesses will not only be hated by the synagogue of Satan, that temple sitting there in Jerusalem, but they will be hated by the Christian churches because at this point in time, the churches have gone so far deep in the sin. Yahweh says they're apostate. I want you to think about that for a second. And they're, they're coming in sackcloth. In other words, and I mean no harm, but I want, I want you to visualize this. They're going to look like street people. Yeah. That's what they're going to look like. Can you imagine these high society Christians sucking on bottles milk, wearing their fancy hats and their garments and their suits? <laughs> well, these two guys can't be of Yahweh. Look at them. <laughs> what a bunch of lunatics. Bunch of Jesus freaks. Wow. What an exciting time. It is for folks like you and I that have a great desire to, to, to as, as John and Paul were, and, and Daniel were told, to take this book, eat it with eagerness. See, that's what you and I are about. We study scriptures in eagerness to understand and fully comprehend of what's being said. So as, as we approach these great days, we can go out and we can continue to witness to those souls and show these idiots. Hey, wait a minute now. You better check out what the word says. This is why it's so important that you and I stay focused in the word and never give up on it. It's beautiful, folks. They're, they're in sackcloth. Their very exterior aspect according with their teachings. So Elijah and John, who came in the spirit and the power. You see the sackcloth of the witnesses is a catchword linking this epistle under the sixth trumpet. Or I should say this episode 
under the sixth trumpet with the sun black as sackcloth. You remember that? This is why I told you. We're in that sixth seal. The sixth, the sixth trumpet. Let me, let me explain this to you again. They're in this sackcloth. The sackcloth of the witnesses is a catchword link in the episode under the sixth trumpet with the sun black as sackcloth and a righteous retribution on the apostates who reject Yahweh's witnesses under the sixth seal. Now you will recall in the first two verses of chapter 11, the Jews were measured off or marked off as belonging to Yahweh. Those whom he will preserve and protect during the final 42 months, while the Gentiles who were rejected will tread underfoot the holy city and continue to oppress the Jewish people under the leadership of the Antichrist. Then next we see him here raising up two preachers, giving them supernatural powers. These will be able to counter the prophetic, and I should say counterfeit signs, of the false prophet that we will learn about when we come to Revelation chapter 13, whose campaign it will be to defy the Antichrist that he serves. You know, what you got to realize, Satan isn't stupid. Satan knows scripture probably better than any Christian that you can, scholar, you can come up with. He knows, he's witnessed everything that, that Moses did with Pharaoh, and he was angry. He's seen what Elijah done. He was especially angry up there to Mount Carmel, where all those Baal worshipers, remember that story? And they went around and they dumped water on the, on, on the logs, on the wood, and they cried out. And Yahweh came to send a devouring fire and caught their bundles and burned up them with 700 Baal followers. Satan didn't like that. See, every time Satan loses, he gets angrier and angrier. thinking the next time he's going to win. And this is where you and I come in, folks. You and I can go out there and bring these individuals in from the darkness, into the light of the gospel of Yeshua Messiah. Folks, listen to me. It's time to quit playing church. We are losing souls, especially the youth. The New World Order under Satan has done their job. They've done it greatly well. We as Christians are lacking, especially the parents, because the parents are attending the school boards and standing up to the school board saying, whoa, no, 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 no. Like I told you, we got a little girl at our elementary and the parents decide that that little girl should be a little boy. And they're going through that process. How sick are these parents? Now, since the Antichrist is the ruler in the times of the Gentiles, 
who will be ruling, therefore, over a revived Roman Empire of European nations. This whole scene, therefore, recapitulates the evil symbolic relationship that it has, that Satan has over the centuries with ancient rulers and their puppet priests and prophets who serve with them to accomplish their nefarious purposes. But even as the ancient rulers of Rome, for an example, once controlled the masses both politically and religiously, Satan will continue this policy in the rule of the Antichrist and his false prophet. So the Lord now raises up two witnesses, witnesses of his saving grace, as well as the wrath that's going to continue to come. And these two powerful preachers will become a thorn in the flesh to the Antichrist and the false prophet. I can acknowledge that. You see, years ago when I was on television right here out down there at Dagsboro, I was a, literally, I was literally a thorn in these local churches. Because I didn't hamper around their, their shenanigans, their falsehoods. I exposed them for what they were. I was a thorn. So I can understand what these two witnesses are getting ready to achieve here. But they loved it. You know why they loved it? Because they're doing the will of Yahweh. Now, now we find three primary categories of revelation that I believe emerge from verses 3 through 14 that can help us understand more about these two witnesses. We will look first at their magnificent ministry, second, their morbid death, and finally, their miraculous resurrection. First, let's take notice of their magnificent ministry beginning in verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, cloth and sackcloth. So now it's fitting upon the measuring of the temple and the Jewish worshipers in verse 1. For Yahweh to now offset the false sign of the false prophet and the Antichrist. So now Yahweh the Father raises up two men. And biblically, we know that every testimony has to be validated by at least two witnesses. And the word witness or witnesses is, is the plural of martis, martos in the Greek, where we get our word martyr from. And that indeed, these men will be martyred for their testimony. We see here that they will prophesy, which means to preach or to proclaim, to speak forth. You see, you must understand that the New Testament prophecy is primarily forthtelling, more, more than foretelling. So these two witnesses will proclaim the gospel of grace, as well as continue to warn about the judgments that are going to come upon the earth, and the eternal hell that will be the abode of those continue to reject Yeshua Messiah. And they will do that, according to the text, for 1,260 days, which is the final three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. This parallels the apostolic witness, as you recall, in the second temple. You remember in Acts chapter 5, verse 20, where the angel of the Lord opened up the gates of the prison, and he commanded them to go your way, Stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message 
of this life. And so we see this now occurring here in the time of the tribulation. You see, folks, why is the story of Paul so instrumental? Do you ever wonder why that is? Or Daniel, Daniel and his three friends. Was Paul ever raptured away? No. Was Daniel? No. Noah? No. Moses? No. They were sent here for a purpose, just like you and I are. Well, what's that purpose? That purpose is to go out there and save souls. These were examples for you and I. That Yahweh protected him. Look, look at this. Just, just, just look at Paul. Look what Paul went. Shipwrecked, in prison, beaten, scorned, blasphemed. Did he ever give up? No. Never. Never. This is the message for you and I. That you and I will continue to our very last breath. To get the gospel of Yeshua Messiah out. To expose the falsest, not only in the churches, but even expose the comings of the new world order. These churches have to wake up. This is why COVID, what was, you know, you, you can stand there and talk about all, all the good things uh, Trump did. I, 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 don't even bother me. What was one of the first things Trump did? He shut down the churches. Think about that. And of course, that lunatic Joe Biden ain't much better. Him and his goofball son, his drug-infested son. And you're telling me 80 million Christians voted for him? If that's true, we definitely got a major problem in the United States of America if 80-some million people voted for Joe Biden. Now, I want you to notice they were cloth and sackcloth. Don't overlook this. Sackcloth was a coarse cloth made of the hair of a camel or a goat. It was often accompanied with ashes that they would put on them. It would be worn by men and women in times of great distress. It was worn by the prophets to call attention to some great wickedness in society. Call the people to repentance as well to warn them of the forthcoming judgment that would be coming. We saw this, for an example, in the minister of Eliah, as well as John the Baptist and others. And here in this context, all of the above will be intended purpose. Plus, this was the proper Jewish response to the temple's desecration. They are now grieving. They are mourning over this as well as over the tyranny of the Antichrist and the many Jews that will be massacred, even though many have fled in the wilderness, and Yahweh will protect them there. Now, we must see these things through the eyes of the Jewish worldview. And as Gentiles, many times, this is hard for us to do. But understand that once the Antichrist enters into the Holy of Holies and blasphemously establishes himself as Yahweh, the temple complex as well as the whole land of Israel will be thrust into a state of ritual defilement. So something must happen. A cleansing must take place. 
and there will be. Therefore, a restoration and a ritual purification that will be accomplished by the Messiah when he physically appears and defeats the, des the desecrator and cleanses the land and finally rebuilds and even consecrates that temple. That is what's going on here, folks. We see this. Quickly here, verse 4. He says here, These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before Yahweh of the earth. Wow. These are represent. These are represented by the two olive trees. Or those are what are symbolized by two olive trees. There can be little doubt that there's an allusion here to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 3, 11, and 14. Though the imagery is somewhat respects chains. The prophet Zechariah there in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, saw in a vision a candlestick of all gold deity with a bowl upon the top of it. And he's seven lamps, spiritual completeness thereon. And seven pipes, seven lamps, all spiritual completeness which were upon the top thereof. Two olive trees, the eth, the alf and the tolv, one upon the right side of the bowl, the other upon the left side thereof. These two olive branches were subsequently declared in Revelation chapter 14, uh, chapter 11, verse 14, to be the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The olive trees or the olive branches there in verse 12 appear in the vision of the prophet to have been connected with the ever-burning lamp by golden pipes as the olive tree produced the oil, el by the ancients and their lamps. These trees are represented as furnishing a constant supply of oil through the golden pipes to the candlestick. And thus they become em emblematic of the supply of grace to the church. John uses this emblem, not in the sense exactly in which it was employed by the prophet, but to denote that these two witnesses, who might be compared to the two olive trees, would be the means of supplying grace to the church, to the ecclesia. As the olive tree furnished oil for the lamps, the two trees here would seem properly to signify ministers of religion, and there can be no doubt that the candlestick or the lamp bearers include, indicate churches. The sense would appear to be that it was the, through the pastors of the churches that the oil of grace, which maintained the brightness of those mystic candlesticks, or the churches, was conveyed. Olive. I'm going to break this down for you. This olive here. Once again, the Greek name for olive, and, I, and I'll put this in my when I upload the podcast later on this afternoon. I'll put this in here. The Greek spelling is El Ha Ya. Now I want you to say, do you see something interesting within the spelling of that name? You see, we have three different names of Yah. We have El, Elihim as the creator. Ha, Yah, Yah, 
as Yahweh in a special sense of relation. Yahweh as becoming our salvation. He who is, was, and is to come. And then you have Yah, Yahweh. While Elohim is the creator of all things, Yahweh is the same but in a covenant relation to those whom he had created. This is why it's so important. There in Matthew chapter 25, about those 10 verses, check it out. The five idiots don't, uh, uh, matter of fact, they're morons. When you read it in the Greek, they're literally morons. These are Christian morons that don't have the oil. Then, of course, you got the five wise that carry this El Hayah. What about these two candlesticks, which hold forth the light of the word? The prophet Zechariah saw but one such candlestick or lamp bearer. John here saw two as our two witnesses referred to. In the vision described there in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, he saw seven representing the seven churches of Asia. And they're standing before Yahweh of the earth. The Alexander copy, by the way, if you're interested, in the Vulgate Latin and so forth, they read the Lord of the earth. But these be the two anointed ones that stand by Yahweh of the whole earth. The meaning is that they stood, as it were, in the very presence of Yahweh, as in the tabernacle or the temple. The golden, sta uh, golden candlestick stood before the ark, on which was the symbol of divine presence, though separated from it by the veil. You can compare that to Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. This representation that the ministers of religion stand before the Lord, is one that is not uncommon in the Bible. Thus it is said of the priests and the Levite, the Lord separate the tribe of Levi to stand before Yahweh, to minister unto him, to bless his name. There in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. Compare it to Deuteronomy 18, 7. The same thing is said of the prophets as the case of Elijah and Elijah. As Yahweh liveth before whom I stand, you see, why? Why are they standing? Because, see, when they stand, they continue to work. See, when you sit down, you're resting. These two witnesses are continually to work. The divine title here used tells us that the events here recur re recorded refer to the earth. For this is a special title which the Holy Spirit uses when right to dominion and authority in the earth is asserted. The title is first used in Joshua chapter 3, verses 11 and 13, where Yahweh claims the right to give the earth to whom he will. Check out Psalms 115, verse 16. But the reference is to Zechariah chapter 4, once again in verse 14. It's used again. Now, while Israel is low ami, not my people, the title used with respect to Israel is the Yahweh of heaven. That's to say, Yahweh who no longer dwells between the cherubim in the midst of his people, but who has withdrawn himself from them, removed to a distance. Yahweh who is now known to Israel as the Yahweh of heaven. Here in Revelation chapter 11, when he again assumes direct 
relationship with Israel and the earth. It is Yahweh, the Lord of the earth, that he will be known. The two olive trees in Zechariah 4 are, are explained as denoting Zerubbabel, the prince, and Joshua, the high priest. When it says here in, 11, in verse 4, these, these two witnesses are the two olive trees. The figure is a metaphor. The verb are means represents. These represent the two olive trees. This is the Spirit's own explanation of these two witnesses. Just as Zerubbabel, born at Babel, means, and Joshua, meaning Savior, are those helping Yahweh, were raised up and gifted, and divinely endowed, and protected against Satan's assaults. So in the coming day of Israel acknowledgement by Yahweh, two other great witnesses from Yahweh will be raised up, corresponding to them, occupying a similar position as the storehouse of heavenly power and wisdom and exercising a similar ministry. These two olive trees represent two individuals then. They are represented two individuals here in Scripture. They will be the two olive day trees for their day, as the Rubble and Joshua were in the former day. Oh, man, this is some powerful stuff, folks. This is the reality. Are you prepared for it? Are you prepared for what's coming down the road? As I close out this morning, I want to close out with a warning against changing Yahweh's grace. In the book of Jude, the epistle of Jude, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our Yahweh into lanishitus. Jude, verses 3 and 4. From the early days of the Lord's church, a constant threat had been posed by those who want to change Yahweh's grace into something it is not. The attempted changes always relate to either lanishitus or legalism. Jude addressed this problem in his powerful letter of warning. He called all followers of the Messiah to engage in a zealous battle for the integrity of the word of Yahweh. I found it necessary, he wrote, to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Such contending is essential, folks, because carnal religious people desire to alter grace as they quietly operate within churches. Paul states, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, ungodly men, who turn the grace of Yahweh into lesnishiness. You see, folks, their intended modifications involve turning grace 
into license. Grace is Yahweh's mina for giving our sins, as well as transforming the sinner that he might sin less and less. Grace is not Yahweh's sanction by which we plan and excuse our personal indulgence. This issue also appears in Romans, as some took Yahweh's grace as unwarranted direction. They started with a glorious truth. Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 20, Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. What a grand actuality this is. No matter how atrocious the extent of our sins, the grace of Yahweh under forgiveness and transformation is far greater. Yet, how heinous is the Lenitianist thought that more indulgence in sin would be a good thing, since such would only present another opportunity for more abounding grace. Paul continues here in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is a resounding negation. Certainly not. How shall we who die in sin live any longer in it? There in Romans 6, 2. Anticipate grace is never an excuse for planning to sin. In the in a, in a, a Galatians, the converse problem of illegalism is confronted. Paul writes in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of the Messiah to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel. Here some are trying to add law requirements to the good news of Yahweh's grace. This attempt to turn grace into performance standard is described as perversion, a grievous twisting of grace. Whether license or legalism, both change and undermine the grace of Yahweh. Dear Heavenly Father, dear Gracious One, I ask to seek out. I repent of those times when I have used grace as an excuse for carnal indulgence or have treated your grace as a call to a religious performance. Father, I ask you in the name of Yeshua Messiah for your forgiving and transforming grace. Grant me discernment. Grant me courage to earnestly contend for true grace through my Messiah, my Lord, dear Father. Father, we are in a spiritual battle. And we see that this new world order is truly changing the gospel of Yeshua Messiah into this legalism. Father, there's no doubt that we do see certain men that have crept in unnoticed, ungodly men, 
who turn our grace of Yahweh into this Lanishius. Father, I pray that you can utilize us and that we can expose these individuals and share the good news, the gospel of Yeshua Messiah. Share the good news of your grace with those that walk in the darkness, that we may be able also to bring them into the light, into the sheepfold of your grace, Father. Father, we see so many times, as Paul writes to the Galatians, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you into grace of the Messiah to a different gospel, which is not of another. We see this happening right here locally in the state, across this nation, throughout the world. Father, we have to expose these individuals. Father, the Holy Spirit, this is what we need to help us. Will you help us, Lord? Help us to reach out to those individuals and to bring them into the light of the gospel of Yeshua Messiah. Reveal to them what is the true dimensions of this false prophet, this antichrist. Show them the method of operation of Satan, how he wants to destroy the church. Father, we ask all of this in your precious name, that you help us, support us, strengthen us as we go out into the highways and preach this gospel of Yeshua Messiah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all things. In that precious name of the great I am, the great F, Yeshua Messiah. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in this morning to Unraveling the Words of Yahweh. If you have any questions or comments, you can call me or text me. My cell phone number is 302-299-2701. That's 299-2701.